This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. We're going to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, this is the uh, fifth message, I believe, in Ephesians over this past couple of weeks. And... Uh, Ephesians 3, we ended up finishing Ephesians 2 this morning, so we're into chapter 3. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is very passionate about these believers fully grasping the revelation that he has been sharing with them about the mystery of God that he spoke of uh, to a degree in the previous two chapters. And we would do well as believers today to really grasp this and get a hold of it in our spirit and so that we would grow in our knowledge of Christ and grow in our knowledge of who we are in Christ. Now, Paul is revealing to them this incredible mystery that was hidden in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. And it wasn't just intended for the first century church in Ephesus, but for the 21st century church, which is us. And so this is important for the whole of our Christian heritage and for something that we should be familiar with. And so we're going to begin reading from chapter 3 and and following, and we'll see how far we get tonight. (coughs) So Paul begins, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Let's just stop there for a moment. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for you Gentiles. Now, remember that I told you at the beginning of the study how that Paul was in a Roman prison, the first Roman imprisonment. In fact, part of that was uh, he was under house arrest. And that's where he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus from and to the church at Colossae from and Philemon and so forth. And so this is one of his prison epistles. But why does he say that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles? What does he mean by that? Well, this mystery that God had revealed to Paul, that he revealed to the world and to the church and to the Gentile and the Jews, was that the Gentile Christians were to be no different than the Jewish Christians, that neither would be all one in Christ And this was one of the main planks of Paul's gospel message. Everywhere he went, he preached this. And of course, he would only be preaching to Jews or Gentiles. And so it was very fitting that he would make this point very, very clear uh, indeed. And so, of course, the Gentiles loved it, uh, but a lot of the Jews resisted it. Now, He said, I'm in prison because of you Gentiles. So what does he mean by that? Well, in Acts 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 and 25, it tells the the, the story of how the apostle Paul and some of his evangelistic friends, they, they were coming back from Caesarea to Jerusalem and they met with some of the church elders to let them know what had been happening in their ministry and how that many Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and wonderful things were happening. And they were pleased and delighted with that. However, 
there were still many, many Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were still holding on to lots of the rites and the rituals, particularly circumcision. Even though they were believers now, they were holding on to that. Now, Paul wasn't against circumcision per se. It was one of the distinctive things uh, of the Jewish people. But what he was against was if they believed that that justified them before God. If they believed that actually it somehow has to do with their salvation because it most certainly wasn't. And Paul made that clear to them. But also he made it very clear that the Gentiles didn't need circumcised. They didn't need anything to do with this whatsoever. But because he's coming into Jerusalem, which was kind of the headquarters of the church, could you say, where most of the Jewish believers were, because the rest of the church was by and large Gentile churches. And so there was still some friction. There were still some uh, feelings, particularly when Paul came, because Paul was the one who was preaching this message. Hey, hey, the Gentiles are saved, and they don't need to do this. Now, they really had battled this out in Acts 15 at the Great Jerusalem Council. And they already had agreed to this, that whenever a Gentile got saved, all they had to do was refrain from eating things strangled or from blood or from, or from fornication and from, uh, you know, living wrong sexually and all of that there and from idols, which would be fair enough, but certainly not to take up the things of the Jewish traditions. They didn't need that. They're saved by, by grace through faith alone in Christ. And so, in Acts 21, uh, it says in verse 15, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, he didn't actually tell the Jews uh, not to circumcise. If they wanted to do that, fine. In fact, he circumcised Timothy in order to placate them at one point. So he wasn't really against circumcision per se. It was just if they trusted that for their salvation, if they believed that justified them before God, then he would have none of that. But these people were conscious of this. And so he says, uh, uh, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. In other words, just, just do this for us. All right? Don't start a whole big row here. Just do this for us. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they have been informed concerning you are nothing and that you yourself also walk according walk orderly and keep the law so these four men who had taken a vow it says this was probably the, the vow of the Nazarite the vow of the Nazarite you could take it for all your life or you could take it for a, a set period of time obviously they took it for a set period of time and part of that vow was you didn't cut your hair and so when the vow was over, the first thing you want to do was shave your head, get your hair cut. That would let everybody know that vow is over. And so here was four, and they says, look, Paul, 
and there was a whole ceremony to go through, a purification ceremony. Offerings had to be made and given. And so he says, you take them in and you go through that with them. And that will show all these Jews who think you're a stir up of trouble that you're not really. See, look, you can go into the temple. You can take them in. You can do all this. You haven't given up all these things. So they were trying to, they were trying to stop a big row starting. That's basically what it was. And so Paul undertook to do that. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, which is what was agreed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the completion of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, and furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple, which he hadn't which he hadn't. Now remember I told you this morning about the different courts that was in the temple? So we can safely assume that Paul and these four, who would be Jews, that they had gone into the court of the Gentiles, sorry, the court of the Israelites, the court of the men of Israel. They'd passed through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the woman, and into the court of the men of Israel. But whenever these Jews from Asia saw which they thought Trophimus this Ephesian Christian Gentile, he's gone. Paul's took him actually into a place that's forbidden for a Gentile to go into. And there's a whole big row began because of that. And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together and seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. Immediately the doors were shut and now as they were seeking to kill him, the news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they're actually beating him up and trying to kill him. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. Where he, and when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So in other words, they carried him up on their shoulders because these people were trying to kill him. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? He had no idea who he was. He thought, well, this must be that Egyptian that's always causing trouble. But Paul says, no, no. He says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a, city of no, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so when he had given them permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great silence. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying... Now, when he spoke to them in the Hebrew language... This is what it says. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Now, for the sake of time, if you read on down there, you'll see what he basically did was tell them his testimony about the trip on the road to Damascus and how he was wanting to kill Christians. 
and how the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, and his eyes was blind for three days, and God sent Ananias to touch him and cause his eyes to be opened, and, and for him then to be wonderfully, gloriously saved, he was on the road to Damascus. And so they were listening very intently to him telling his testimony. And then in verse 19, So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I am imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. But then he said to me, Depart, and I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Now notice what happens when he mentions, God sent me to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And they cried and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air. And so they desperate, if they wanted to kill him before, they definitely want to kill him now. And so this commander then, he grabs him and he takes him and, and, and chains him. And he says to them, well, well, who are you? What is this all about? And, and Paul said, Sorry, they were going to scourge him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Because Romans wouldn't scourge a Roman. Because when you get scourged with that whip, the chances are you will die. And so they wouldn't crucify Romans either, by the way. So he says, are you going to scourge me, me being a Roman citizen? He said, Tell me, are you Roman? He says, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid. He found out he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. The next day he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down, set him before him. And then Paul again goes through his whole testimony to all these rulers. And after all of that, then, and so the commander, sorry, well, because of time, when you read on, they hatched the plot that 40 of them bound themselves together, swore an oath they were going to kill Paul. And the word got back to the commander this was going to happen. And so he saves him from that, sends him to Caesarea to appear before Felix, the governor. And when he appeared before Felix, the governor, then when Felix began to question him, and again he gave his testimony to Felix, and in the end, Felix's knees began to tremble. It, it shook Felix. Such was the power of God in this man's testimony. That actually, that, that governor, actually, he was shaking in his boots. And he says, go away for now, he says. I'm going to have a convenient season. I'll call for you. <laughs> but then, after a while, Festus took over from Felix. And he questioned him. And he was wanting to please the Jews. And he really didn't know what to do with him. So he kept him like, under house arrest for two years. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, had had enough of this. So he says, I appeal unto Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen, and this is my last court of, port of call, Caesar. I can appeal to Caesar, which was the Roman law. You could do that. And so then he went before Agrippa, King Agrippa. 
and shared with King Agrippa. But because he had appealed to Caesar, Agrippa couldn't let him go. He had to go to Rome. And the Lord had told him in a dream, don't worry, as you have testified in Jerusalem, you will also testify in Rome. And so the journey began to Rome. And that's how Paul became a prisoner. Why? Because he stood up for the Gentiles. Because he preached the gospel that included the Gentiles. And that got him into trouble everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, Jews got him into trouble because of that. So he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I am in prison because of you Gentiles, because I have stood for you, because I believe that Christ has saved you by his precious blood, he has wiped the slate clean. You don't have to go into all that Jewish rituals and stuff. You don't need that. It's gone as far as you're concerned. Now you're saved. And everywhere he went, that got him into trouble. And so that's why he's saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Colossians is a companion book with Ephesians. It was written roughly the same time from the same place. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul writing to them says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I, become, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's letting them know this is why he's in prison, for the same reason. Philippians 1, 12 and 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Philippians is another prison epistle, by the way. So that it has become evident to the whole praetorium guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he says, actually, although I ended up in prison because of the gospel I preach, which is including you in Christ, he says, actually, it's a good thing. In fact, he says, it's made the gospel go even further because it's emboldened other believers to share this message that Christ has given me. Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13, for even as the body is one and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are all one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Now notice how this message of God's mystery revealed is such an important thing in Paul's gospel. And notice how he shared it with the Ephesians, with the Galatians, with the Philippians, with the Corinthians, and with anybody who wanted to hear. Everywhere he went, this was at the very heart of his message. Then verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation or the stewardship, basically that's what it means, of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, and how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read it, you may understand the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. That was given to me by revelation. I didn't get this of any of the apostles. 
In fact, when Paul got saved, he spent three years in the Arabian desert. He didn't go near the apostles. He went to be with the Lord himself and see what the Lord had to say. And that's where he got the revelation that he's sharing now with the whole world. And it wasn't given by men. It was given by God. It was a revelation of God. And so he said, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace given to me by the effective working of his power. Then he says, verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. To me who was not even the least of the, but less than the least of all the saints. You know, he was previously called Saul, probably called after King Saul, who was head and shoulders above all men in the Old Testament. Physically, he was a big man. But Paul means little one. And the chances are he probably was a little man. But he was little in humility. He was humble. This is the greatest apostle of them all. This, this is one who had the greatest ministry of them all. This is one who had the most miraculous ministry of them all. This is the one who was the greatest speaker of them all. This is the one who was the greatest teacher of them all. And yet he says, I'm the least of all of the saints. At one point he called himself the chiefest of sinners. And so even though he knew in Christ he was a great apostle, but in his humanity he felt, I'm just little Paul. Great humility of this man. So to me who am least, less than least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It always intrigues me uh, how that that God sent this great Jewish rabbi, because that's what he was, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, schooled in all of the ways of Jewry, that he sent him to the Gentiles. And Peter, who was a fisherman, he sent him to the, the learned Jews. But you see, God's ways are not our ways. Sure they're not. Why? So that God should get the glory. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Notice here he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is noticeable when Paul talks about Christ's riches. In Ephesians 1 and 7, he talks about the riches of his grace. In 2.7, the exceeding riches of his grace. In 3.8, the unsearchable riches of his grace. In Romans 2.4, the riches of his goodness. In Romans 9.23, the riches of his glory. Notice in all of that, he's not mentioning anything material. He's talking about spiritual riches. Now, it's not that he didn't believe that God blesses us materially. Because in Philippians 4.19, he says, My God shall supply all your need. Because they were concerned about their needs. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two chapters he takes on one offering. An offering among the Gentile churches that was to go to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And he takes two chapters speaking about the one thing. And he tells them God loves a cheerful giver. 
and with the same measure that you meet, and so forth. So, so he, he, he certainly believed that God wants to bless us. He hadn't a problem with that. But the greater blessing, he taught, was spiritual riches, that God wants to bless us in the inner man. He'll look after the rest. If we put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, Jesus said, shall be added unto us. So our focus should be on spiritual riches, not material riches. God will bless us what we need if we put him first. And so, in verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus <coughs> our Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Now here is... <coughs> just let me take a drink. Here is an amazing thing. This revelation that Paul had to the church, this mystery of God that was revealed, that was unknown, but now is known. It was not revealed to the greatest and the most godliest of men and women in the Old Testament, even to the greatest prophets. Even though they prophesied of it, they didn't really know exactly what they're prophesying about. It wasn't revealed to them. But amazingly, it was not even revealed to the very angels in heaven. It was not revealed when he talks about principalities and powers in the heavenlies. There's that angelic, that angelic strata of powers and principalities and the same in the demonic as well. And it was not revealed to either of them. Even the very angels in heaven didn't know this. God kept it a secret until the apostle Paul came along. Peter didn't know it. James didn't know it. John didn't know it. It took Paul to come along for God then to reveal this wonderful <coughs> mystery that he hidden from before the foundation of the world. Such things angels, Peter says, desire to look into. Now the devil and his demons, of course, they knew Jesus. They knew Jesus. You remember the sons of Sceva, how they tried to cast out a demon? And how the man jumped on them and beat them up? And he says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? So they knew who Jesus was. Remember the demon said to Jesus one time, are you come to destroy us before the time? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> so they knew exactly who he was. And they knew the time he was born. In fact, they tried to get Herod to kill him. And they knew that he had come to his own people, the Jews, to bless them and to save them from destruction. They knew that. But they hadn't got the revelation, the full reason why God sent his son. They hadn't got it. It was hidden from them. What they knew of him was enough for the devil and his minions to want to destroy him. And so the devil tempted him in the wilderness. Since you are the son of God, you know, when it says if you are the son of God, but the real text means since you are the son of God. If you really are the son of God, since you are the son of God, as you, as you say, 
then why didn't you do this? Why didn't you bow down before me and so forth? Tried everything to get Jesus to, to be tempted to submit to him, to worship him. Of course, Jesus wouldn't do that. Sure he wouldn't. And so the devil and his minions, they, they concocted a plan on how to kill him. Stir up the Jews. Stir up the Pharisees. Stir up the Sadducees. Stir up the Sanhedrin. And get him, get him falsely accused. And get him unlawfully tried. Because he was tried several times unlawfully. And after that, get him crucified. Get the Romans to nail him to a cross and kill him and put him in a tomb. And then we can say, he's dead. The Son of God is dead forever. He's gone. <laughs> but what they didn't know was that that was God's plan all along. Yeah. God's plan all along was to put his son on the cross to die for our sins. It was his plan the whole time. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 10 says, it had the powers that be basically had known that they would not have crucified the Son of God, but they didn't know it. They didn't know it. And so God's mystery that we've got to understand, this mystery that was hidden that now has been revealed, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're slave or free, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, in Christ, you're all one in Christ. And that's the beauty of the wonder of the gospel. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice it says, might be made known by the church. This mystery has been revealed to us that we may share it, that we may share the gospel, that we may give it the good news, that we may be able to tell people that no matter who they are, they can come in and be in Christ and be in the family of God. That has been given to us. That's our commission. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, brown, red or yellow or green in our country, then you can be one in Christ Jesus. Verse 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. But notice that in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Not even the high priest in the Old Testament could enter into the holiest of holies with boldness or with confidence. He'd go in there in fear and trembling. He had a ritual to go through. He had to bathe. He had to dress a certain way. He had to make sacrifice. had to make atonement for him, for his family. Everything had to be done exactly and precisely right at the right time on the right day. So you can imagine if he would go in and something was wrong, he would be dead. They'd have to drag him out of that place. Some say they actually put a rope around the high priest's foot so that if he did die, because they couldn't go in, they'd have to drag him out. So he wasn't going by any great confidence or assurance. He was hoping against hope that what he would do would be accepted by God and he would live another year to do it. 
But Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says that we can boldly go with confidence to the very throne of grace because <laughs> Christ has made a way for us to go in. Not that we go flippantly or irreverently, but we can go with confidence, not with cringing fear because God loves us and he welcomes us into his presence that we can go into his throne room and we can talk to him. And so this is the wonder of what God is sharing through Paul. And then in verse 14 to 19, this is Paul's second prayer for this church at Ephesus. In chapter one, he's prayed for them. Now in chapter three, he's praying for them again. And again, he tells them what he's praying because I'll, I'll repeat this, that often we say to somebody, I'm praying for you, but we never say what we're praying. But he tells them, this is what I'm praying for you. I want you to know this is my prayer for you. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For what reason? For this reason, what reason? All that he has told us so far that we have been made alive in Christ, that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the saints of the household of God, that we are his workmanship, that we are a dwelling place for his spirit, that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ spiritually, all of that and more. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there's no set stance in how you pray. You can pray on your knees, you can pray standing up, you can pray sitting down. You'll find all of those stances throughout the Bible. So don't get hung up on, I have to, have to get on my knees, particularly if, if you've got knees like my knees. You get a certain age, your knees are just not so, they're not so comfortable if you're on them. So you can stand up or you can walk. You can prayer walk if you like. It's the heart God looks at. In verse 15, he says, For whom, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so now we are part of the great family of God, of those who are in heaven who has gone before, of those who are still here, including us. We're part of this great family. Glory to God. And one day the whole family will be reunited in Christ in the glory. And so... All men belong to God by creative right because he is our creator. But we belong to God by redemptive right and that's much more important. And it's only those who belong to God by redemptive right are his family on earth and his family in heaven. Once you get saved and born again, you spiritually, mysteriously, mystically become part of the family of God and we're brothers and sisters in Christ and it's a wonderful thing no matter where you go in the world and I've been lots of places in the world when you meet believers instantly there's a connection even if you can't speak the same language we're brothers and sisters in the Lord verse 16 here's what he's praying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. 
He wants your inner man to be strong and to be strengthened by God's Holy Spirit. That he would grant you according to the riches. Not out of his riches, but according to his riches. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. According to means a portion. But, sorry, out of means a portion, but according to means a proportion. Out of simply means a portion. But according to means a proportion. If you were a millionaire and you gave somebody a thousand pounds, that would be a portion. But if you gave them 10%, that would be a proportion. That would be 100,000. That would be a lot better, wouldn't it? So God gives us not just a portion, but proportionately out of his riches in glory as much as we can handle. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts through faith from the moment you get saved? So is Paul just being redundant here in what he's saying? <laughs> is he just stating the obvious for no reason at all? Yes, it is true that God indwells us by his spirit at the moment we're saved. That is true. Without the spirit of Christ, you're none of his. So the moment you get saved, God's spirit begins to indwell you. We are the temple of God. We know that. But is our heart a home in the sense that it's a place where he loves to be? I think this is what Paul's getting at. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you ever go to visit somebody in their home and you immediately felt not welcome? You had that feeling that you're not welcome. I went to visit somebody in their home one day and they ran out the door and hid in the back garden. <laughs> Truth. And I saw them. <laughs> I literally saw them running out the back door. And I said to her husband, I says, why is your wife just running out the back door? And he couldn't answer me. He didn't know what to say. He was embarrassed. And I had to leave. I'm telling you the truth. Do you think I felt welcome? No. Not at all. But whenever Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that's where he felt most welcome. He loved to go there. Because there he could just relax. He was comfortable. He was loved. He was appreciated. They just loved Jesus to come and stay in their wee house. It was wonderful. What a privilege it was for them. And they loved it. And he loved it. He loved just being around them. He just felt comfortable. And it's lovely when that happens. Now, I think Paul said, does he feel comfortable in our hearts? Have we made it a home for him? Or he's settled? Or he enjoys it? Or he wants to be around us? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Verse 17. The Jew being rooted and ground it in love. Does that mean rooted and ground it 
in our love for him, but rooted and grounded in his love for us. I think it may mean the latter, because our love for him can wax and wane. Hmm? Our love from him is not always consistent. Sometimes it depends on what we're going through. When you're going through a rough time and the old devil comes and whispers in your ear, huh, think God cares about you? If God really cared about you, you wouldn't be in this mess. So our love sometimes can wax and wane, but his never changes. He loves us with an everlasting love. Does it also mean, and it can mean this, that we're rooted and grounded in our love for one another. Because in the context that he's writing here to show the Jews and the Gentiles that they're one in Christ, that they should love each other in Christ. And that can be the hard part, can't it? To dwell above with saints we love, that indeed will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Isn't it? And sometimes it's not easy. Sure it's not. Like that person who ran out the back garden, she wasn't loving me that day. Sure she wasn't. <laughs> Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. You'll probably be tested the most as a believer when it comes to love, loving each other. Because in our humanity, we rub each other up the wrong way sometimes. Not that we often mean it, but sometimes we just do it. And sometimes we have, to, we have to overlook some things and forgive some things because we're one in Christ. Verse 18, 19, we're almost through here. But you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the width and the length and the depth and the height? The width of God's love, it encompasses the Jew and the Gentile, the bond and the slave, yeah. the bond and the free, the male and the female, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, whatever. It encompasses everyone, the width of it. The length of God's love, it's from everlasting to everlasting from before the foundation of the world until the eternity of the eternities. God's love never wavers. The depths of God's love, amazing grace, I sweet the sound. The grace that saved a wretch like me, Newton said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I can see. That slave trader, that blasphemer, that foul-mouthed man. <laughs> but when he found Christ, he found that amazing grace. The depths of God's love can reach down to the deepest pit 
and lift a man or woman up. The height of God's love. What he told us, didn't he? He seats us in heavenly places in Christ. And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. The love of Christ surpasses all human knowledge. It's way beyond our human faculties. We cannot fully grasp it in a cerebral way. We're limited in grasping it, but we can understand it in a practical, experiential way. We know it because we've experienced it. How do you describe to somebody that you love them? How do you describe love? What is it? What does a yard of love look like? What does an ounce of love look like? You can't really describe it, but you know it when you feel it and you experience it and you get it and you give it. It surpasses all human understanding. Another prisoner once wrote of the love of God. Could we rethink the oceans fill and where the skies of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. <laughs> that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible prayer this is. Can Paul really be serious? I mean, has he run away with himself here? How is this even possible? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <laughs> you think you're just going to be a bit excited and just said this? No, he truly believed this. Space abhors a vacuum. Air or water will want to fill space wherever it finds it. And God doesn't want any spaces in us. He wants every space filled with himself. So there's no room for self. There's no room for sin. There's no room for Satan. That we're filled with all the fullness of him. Maybe this is what Paul means when he urges us to be filled with the Spirit. So there's no room for anything else. And I think that's the heart of what Paul was saying there. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That there's no room for anything else. That you've done with the nonsense of this world. Now we just think about Christ and his glory. And then the benediction. <laughs> you should read Paul's benedictions, by the way. As you go through his, just read his benedictions. Uh, I have a, a couple of books of an old, an old English preacher, in the, uh, uh, Joseph Parker. In a great church in London in the 1800s. And it's full of sermons. But they're dated because he's relating to events away in the 1800s. But just reading his prayers, actually somebody has transcribed his prayer. His prayers is better than the most sermons I've ever heard. <laughs> you should read Paul's benedictions. <laughs> now unto him 
who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) These are Paul's superlatives. Sometimes Paul just runs out of things to say. He can't think anymore. He loves to speak of God's tender mercies, of his exceeding kindness, his loving kindness. Peter talks about this too. Peter talks about the exceeding great and precious promises. He's spoken superlatives too. Now listen to how he ends this prayer. And it's a great crescendo of superlatives. Ruth Paxton, she puts it this way, and I like it, so I'll just read this to you. It's like a pyramid. So imagine a pyramid of this. Unto him that is able to do all that we ask or think, above all that we ask or think, abundantly above all that we ask or think, exceedingly abundantly above all that we... Have you got it? (laughs) According to the power that's working in us. What a benediction. Again, John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power such that none can ever ask too much. God's bigger than all of it, isn't he? And so what a book. I'm only halfway through it. You know, you could just stop there and go back again, start from the beginning, and you get a lot more stuff out of it that you couldn't even time to talk about. Wonderful, precious Word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us and to encourage us and to equip us and to show us who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.